0: You are hardwired for worship, and a worshiper you will be. You can't stop worshiping. If it's not the true God, then you're worshiping something else. And all too often, idolatry is about financial prosperity.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington, Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom concludes our current series with part six of The Deadly Dangers of Materialism. We've been studying what Jesus says about materialism in his Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in Matthew chapter six. Today, you'll be challenged to examine your deepest motivations concerning attention, asking these questions. What is your highest devotion and allegiance? Is it the heavenly treasure of God's kingdom or is it earthly treasure? Temporal things devoted to your own kingdom or things of God dedicated to His kingdom? Open your Bible now as we join Tom Pennington on The Word Unleashed.
0: And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns... This is the man who hears the message of the gospel, and the worries of the world, that is, the things that we worry about in this world, careers and mortgages and and jobs and homes, and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Here again is a person who hears the gospel, and their initial response is positive, positive you look at them and you say, that person became a Christian. But rather than suddenly turning from their profession like the earlier soil does, this just gradually dies away. Here's a person who hears the gospel, they seem to respond, and the church is filled with people like this, who over time, the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth maybe they they have it and want to keep it or want more or they don't have it and want to get it and that's what life becomes about and it chokes out the word and notice the key it is unfruitful it becomes unfruitful luke says they are choked and bring no fruit to maturity in other words this never was a real christian it looked like he was initially But over time, these things choke the word. They choke the gospel out. They may still be attending church, may still be making professions of faith as if they belong to Jesus, but they're just going through the motions because the seed died a long time ago. Any love that was apparently there for Christ and his kingdom is long gone. Jesus says, beware. Beware of materialism. It can blind you to the true gospel. Over a few chapters in chapter 19, you see this up close and personal with a a specific man. Matthew 19, verse 16, a man who's called a young ruler, he's a young man, but even at his young age, he has been elected to be a ruler in his local synagogue, a leader in his local synagogue. He's a civic leader. He's wealthy. He owns much property. At a very early age, he's become a great success, but he realizes he doesn't have everything he wants. There's something lacking. Verse 16, he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? He says, surely there's something I can do. Jesus says to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, that's God. Jesus is saying to him, look, you think I'm just a human teacher. So if you think I'm just a human teacher, don't call me good. Only God is good. And obviously this young ruler has not seen that reality about Jesus yet. But he says to them, if you wish to enter into life, if you want eternal life, keep the commandments. Now Jesus isn't teaching salvation by works here. He's holding up the law to show this guy that he can never obtain eternal life. Remember Galatians 3? The law is a tutor to drive us to Christ. That's what he's doing. He's saying, look, you want to earn your own way? Okay, keep God's law. And this guy thinks he can. Verse 18, which ones? Jesus then quotes five of the six of the second table of the Ten Commandments, the ones that have to do with our relationship to others. He says, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And then instead of the sixth one, he gives a summary, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's a very indicting list. If you understand the law at all, and you understand what Jesus is saying, you look at that list and you realize... There's no way. I can never obtain eternal life by doing those things because I've already broken all of them. If not outwardly, at least in my heart. But this guy doesn't get it. Verse 20. All these things I have kept. I've done that. What do I still lack? Tell me something else to do. So Jesus puts his finger on this guy's problem. And he shows him in just a brilliant statement that he hasn't kept either table of the law, the ones about God or the ones about people. He says, okay, verse 21, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. At one fell swoop, Jesus says, you don't love your neighbor as yourself because you're not willing to let go of your stuff to help your neighbor. And he says, you don't love God because you're not willing to obey God's son and come follow me. Verse 22, when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Jesus says to his disciples in in response to that, the guy walks away and Jesus says, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. By the way, there is no gate. There was no gate in Jerusalem that was called the needle gate. Jesus is using hyperbole here. He's saying, go ahead, try to get a real camel through the real eye of a real sewing needle. If you can do that, then a wealthy person can be saved. He was saying, it's impossible. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? Remember now, they're coming from a mindset that thinks that if a person's wealthy, that means God has blessed them because he's pleased with them. And so if even the wealthy person can't get in, what hope do the rest of us have? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. The rich person, he's never gonna come on his own, but with God, all things are possible. Now, why is it hard for a wealthy person to be saved? Scripture says it's because they are tempted to trust in their wealth instead of God. Listen to Psalm 49, verse 6. It speaks of those who trust in their wealth. Psalm 52, verse 7. Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches. 1 Timothy 6.17, Paul says to Timothy, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Understand that wealth can blind you to the value of spiritual things, and it can also blind you to the true gospel, as it did this young man. Thirdly, it can blind you to its own destructive power. You see, people who are engaged in pursuing wealth, and that's really what life's about, they don't see how destructive that is. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter six. 1 Timothy chapter six, verse nine. Paul says, but those who want to get rich, if that's your ambition, they fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires. And sometimes those desires plunge men into eternal ruin and eternal destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some, by longing for it, have even wandered away from the faith. There's the thorny ground. There's the person who appears to be in Christ, appears to be the real deal, and the love of money has caused them to wander away from the faith, and they've pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God. You see, wealth deceives. It deceives and causes spiritual blindness so that you don't see the danger. You don't see that wealth doesn't come alone. The desire for wealth, the love of money doesn't come alone. It comes with bad friends, temptations, and snares, and foolish and harmful desires, and all kinds of evil. Number four, materialism can blind you to what God has already provided. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse five. I love this verse. Hebrews 13, verse five. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. You see, materialism will blind you to what you have and being content with it. You won't see, if you love and want more, you're not looking at what God has already given to you. You're all consumed with what you don't have instead of being content with what God has provided. Do you think being rich, you think those who are rich are satisfied? You think they stop coveting? You think they stop wanting and wanting more? I don't remember, maybe it was Getty that was asked at one point, you know, how much money is enough? And he said, just one more dollar. It's always that way. But notice the rest of the verse. Not only are we blinded to the material provision that God has made for us, but the spiritual vision as well. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Not only do you have what you need to live in this life, but you have God. And he's never going away. Your money might go away. Your investments might disappear. Inflation might eat them all up. But God's going nowhere. You've got him. But materialism blinds us to what we have. Jesus warned us that materialism is a deadly danger because it is one of the chief causes of spiritual blindness. There's a third and final danger back in Matthew chapter 6. I want you to turn there with me. In verse 24, it's the danger of becoming a worshiper of materialism. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Now on the face of it, that doesn't appear to be true at first, right? I mean, most of us have had a couple of jobs at one time, and we've had a couple of different bosses, That's where English can kind of obscure our Lord's meaning. Because the Greek text isn't talking about the employer-employee relationship. The Greek verb that's translated as serve in this verse is the verb form of the Greek noun doulos. This refers to working as a slave. And the word for masters is the plural form of kurios, meaning lords or masters. So what Jesus is saying is a slave can have two masters. And if he tries to have two masters, one of those masters is eventually going to exercise a greater authority. Look at the rest of the verse. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You will ultimately prefer one master above the other, especially when there's a contest between the two. D.A. Carson writes, Matthew 6.24 warns us that during crises, our allegiances get sorted out and only one can come out on top. One master will be preferred. What or whom we want to serve most will be revealed. See, here's how it works. For a while, you can look like you're really able to be a slave to pursuing wealth and serving God. Looks like you can do it. But then a point of conflict comes when the two clash. When one of them is telling you to do one thing and the other is telling you to do another. When your career says, this is what you need to do. And the Lord says, you need to make sure that you're being a spiritual leader in your family and you need to make sure you have them where they need to be. At that moment, you're going to decide between masters. The decision you make will tell you everything you need to know about who your master is. That's what Jesus is saying. Notice the end of verse 24. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Aramaic word for wealth is mamona, or in Greek, mammon. Some versions use the word mammon. That wasn't an actual God. It's, it's the Aramaic word for wealth. Wealth held in money, possessions, property, etc. And he says you cannot It's a strong word which speaks of impossibility. You see, in this brief statement, Jesus is making one of the most profound statements about spiritual existence anywhere in Scripture. It's this. You are a slave of something. Every person hearing my voice, myself included, we are all slaves to someone or something. There's no such thing as a truly free person. You are ultimately either a slave to sin, maybe the sin of materialism, maybe the sin of of pleasure, of physical appetites, some sort of sin, or God. That's it. In Romans chapter 6, verse 20, Paul says, you were the slaves of sin before you came to Christ. Listen to verse 22 of Romans 6. But now, having been freed from your slavery to sin, you are, listen to what he says, enslaved God that's it every person here every person who exists every person who ever has existed was a slave either to sin or to God those are the only two options Jesus here is talking about more than just being a slave in the sense of a human slave to another human his point here is that whatever you are a slave to you are in reality worshiping You can have both wealth as the object of your worship and God at the same time. As John Calvin writes, where the affection is not entire, there is no true worship of God. Or William Hendrickson, this supreme allegiance cannot be rendered to two parties. Whoever renders it becomes a worshiper and the one to whom it is rendered becomes his God. So the real danger that Jesus is pointing out in verse 24 is that wealth can usurp the place of God and become the object of our worship. Calvin was right when he said the human mind is a factory of idols. It's part of our fallenness. We just just are good at producing idols and wealth can easily become an idol. As one author puts it, anybody who divides his allegiance between God and mammon has already given it to mammon since God can be served only with entire and exclusive devotion. This is simply because he is God. He said, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other. To try to share him with other loyalties is to have opted for idolatry. You see, you were wired by God and I was wired by God for worship. You are hardwired for worship, and a worshiper you will be. You can't stop worshiping. If it's not the true God, then you're worshiping something else. And all too often, idolatry is about financial prosperity. You ever ask yourself, why did people in the Old Testament worship those gods? Why did they worship Baal, for example? Well remember now they lived in an agricultural society, and who was Baal? He was the god of rain, the god of the storms. They worshiped Baal because they thought they could get him to give rain and they would enjoy greater financial prosperity it 's often connected to idolatry in fact, hosea chapter two verse five. Israel said, I will go after other gods who give me my bread, my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, and my drink. That's what they were after. It was about financial prosperity. They were worshiping at the idol of Mammon, figuratively speaking. Hosea 2.8 says, for Israel does not know that it was I, God says, who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they then used for Baal. So understand, idolatry has often been about financial prosperity. And the same is true today. Our culture worships at the shrine of materialism just as surely as if everyone had wood or stone statues in their homes and they fell down and paid them homage. Have you become a slave of materialism? Have you made it an idol? Let me ask you a couple of questions. Just discern this in your own heart. Do you love wealth more than you love anything else, including God? Are you willing to disobey God to have it? Do you believe that wealth will bring you the greatest happiness and joy? Do you obey the desire for wealth and make sacrifices to it, to satisfy it? Sacrifices of your family and your time and your health in order to get it? If you answered yes to one or more of those questions, then it has become an idol. Oh, and by the way, an idol isn't always a complete substitute for the true God. Idols were often set alongside the true God. In 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 41, it speaks of the nations like Assyria who feared Yahweh, but also served their idols their children likewise and their grandchildren as their fathers did, so they do to this day. Listen, you can be a worshiper of the true God and still be an idolater. You just put something on the shelf next to him that matters as much to you, and it's become an idol. Let me urge you, as I have had to do with my own soul, search your soul. G. Campbell Morgan writes, let men take five minutes to shut out everything except the great fact that they stand alone with God. If they will, if they dare, let them ask as they stand before him in light of the first commandment, what is my God? To what is my life really devoted? If the answer indicates anything that puts God into the background, then in the name of heaven and of their own safety, let them tear down every idol and let the God who was and who is and who always will be be their God. May we never forget our Lord's words. You cannot serve God and wealth. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are cut to the heart by your words to us, because we live in a, in a materialistic culture, and we are influenced by it every day, by the advertisements and the cries to have more stuff, that, that somehow happiness is found in the abundance of possessions. Father, I pray that those of us who know and love you, you would help us Help us to see it and to respond to it appropriately. Lord, may we invest our resources, not primarily here, but may we truly invest our hearts and our resources in heaven, in the kingdom work. And Father, I pray that you'd protect us from spiritual blindness. Help us to see. May we be able to live outside of our times and to look in and see rather than being blinded by what everyone else is blinded by. Father, I also pray for those here this morning who are truly spiritually blind to the gospel, to the need of their souls, to to their own sin, to the beauty of Christ, to the forgiveness that's found in His life and death. Father, I pray that today You would remove the blindness, that You who commanded there to be light in the universe would speak into their souls and say, let there be light. May they see their sin. May they see Christ and what he has done for them in his death for sin. And may they put their faith and confidence in him alone. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes our series, The Deadly Dangers of Materialism. Tom will have a brand new series for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. But for now, Tom has some closing thoughts for us. Tom?
0: Let me just encourage you to take a few minutes to pray and lay out your heart before the Lord, to ask Him to help sort out your priorities, to sort out your view of the resources he's given you, and ask him to see if there's any way in you that causes him pain as the psalmist prayed, so that you can be on the course that pleases him. Just take some time to search your heart before the Lord and ask for his spirit to help you to see yourself in light of what you've seen in the scriptures as we've studied it together.
1: Thanks, Tom. Well, friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You'll find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory